Seventy for reading God's word. Uh, this is Ruth chapter four, verse six, and it says, "Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it." Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to understand your redemption of us and to step into one another's lives as redeemers, that we would live out the great call that you have placed within us, and we would do it with great joy because we understand what you have done to rescue us, that we would begin to live our lives out, understanding more of who you are in everything that we do. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is, we're actually hitting chapter four of the book of Ruth. That's the last chapter in the book of Ruth, though it's going to take us a little over a month, yay, to get through it. We've been in the book of Ruth two months at this point. This is week nine, and today we're going to get to a subject that might, I don't know, it's maybe like the Lowe's comments and stuff. It, it, it might, depend on who you are and what you think, it might kind of brush up against you the wrong way. Uh, we're going to talk about how, in the scriptures, God sent men into certain situations to redeem that for the sake of protecting women who couldn't protect themselves. This was meant to be seen as kindness on the part of who God is. And... Uh, When I talk about this, I get accused sometimes of being sexist and things like that. That is not what I'm trying to do. I have talked to people who call themselves feminists on both sides of the issue who would look at somebody else who called themselves a feminist and say, well, they're not a feminist. Like one side who who really wants to see, you know, women's rights become something that protects them and another side that I see on TV a lot that just seems to want to, I think, move women to a place of anything that resemble, not resembles sanity at all. Like when they, when they look at women who work in the home taking care of their kids and they see that as degrading, or they see it as being outdated, or some of these women think that women should toughen up rather than thinking that men should actually learn how to be kinder and stop being idiots them, themselves. Uh, they look at disdain on, on housewives and mothers as this degrading career, and they believe that women should never be financially dependent on men whatsoever. That, Some of these groups have even said that professionals can better raise children than mothers can. I personally think it is crazy that there's a group out there that's called NOW, the National Organization for Women, that speaks for all women, and nobody voted them in. But nobody can criticize them because they speak for all women. And as I said, on the other side, there are some people who I know, a couple of them even go to Element, who would call themselves feminists, and they're nothing like that at all. And so you have this whole dichotomy that comes in this. And so what I want to say today at the outset is this, is don't think I'm a chauvinist just because I think uh, men and women should hold each other to higher esteem in one another's eyes, that, that men should do what they can to make sure that women are actually protected and cared for and looked after, that I don't think anybody should declare war on unborn babies or our lives or our homes. And I pray for the day when men would treat women with dignity and respect simply because we are both made in the image of God and not because a woman's name is Ronta Rousey and she can punch you into oblivion if you, if you tick her off. I think men and women need to hold each other in higher esteem and more value in each other's eyes. And this is what we'll come back to at the end. Last week, someone told me that I was matter-of-fact. Uh, I, I, that's just me. I, so I don't know if there's any difference in what I talked about last week, but... I'm going to matter of fact today a little bit, I think. Uh, so that's how I start. Let's see where we need to go. Uh, if you are new, I'm going to catch you up where we are. So, hey, this is your holiday Sunday. If you haven't been at, at the Book of Ruth yet, 
good for you. I'm going to catch you up to exactly where we are today. Uh, Ruth is a book that comes out of what's called the book of Judges. It's almost like a juxtaposition to the book of Judges. Judges ends on this very somber note uh, in, in Israel's state as a nation. Uh, Judges 21-25, Judges ends like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To me, that sounds a lot like America. We all do what is right in our own eyes, and if someone tells us we can't, well, then there's going to be hell to pay. There used to be signs in businesses, and some people still have these, and they say, we refuse the right, we, we have the right to refuse service to anyone, right? But even people hang those up, that's actually not true anymore. That's not true, because everybody who has an issue with somebody else sees their issue as like a civil rights issue, and it's not a civil rights issue. And if, you're, if your whole people have not been held down in slavery, your issue is not a civil rights issue, okay? I think civil rights issues are huge, and they're extremely important, but somebody wanted, so you getting mad at somebody for not doing something for you is not necessarily a civil rights issue. And, and we hold these things, and we want to sue people for not doing what we want them to do. We are just like people in the book of Judges. Our culture acts like if we want to do something, and someone tells us, no, well, we're going to sue them and boycott them and say all kinds of nasty things about them. And so this is how the book of Judges ends. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes, and it's destroying the country. And then you hit Ruth 1.1. And the days when the judges ruled, so the days when the judges ruled, again, are like our days, where you know we all hate Hitler, but everybody acts like him just a little bit. right? In the days when the judges ruled, there's a famine in the land. And this famine could be judgment from God on what some of the people were doing. It could be that everybody was lazy, nobody wanted to work, but that's how it starts. And during that horrible time that we still call today, right? Uh, in the time of the judges, there's this man who runs from his responsibility and takes his family to this place called Moab. This guy's name is Elimelech, and he's a man who looks around and sees this famine. Could have been something he even contributed to, and he goes to Moab to try and start over. I ruined this. I'm going to go here and start over. So he moves about 50 miles away. He takes his entire family with him, all of which will die except for his wife named Naomi. Elimelech doesn't look for a place to leave a legacy. He just looks for tomorrow and not what comes after tomorrow. So he's in Moab, and his two sons marry Moabite women. Moab is a culture that worships this god called Chemosh. In our culture, we would say Chemosh the subduer, Chemosh the destroyer, Gozer the Gozerian, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. That, that, that's him. He delights in human sacrifice, even infant sacrifice. And so the Moabites start out as this people who come about by incest. Earlier in the Torah and then in the book of Joshua, they keep the Moabites keep trying to destroy the Israelites, and they can't. So they hatch a new plan. We're going to send our women over. They're going to seduce these Israelite men into sin, and then God will destroy them for us. It's really a brilliant plan. I mean, wrong, but, but really kind of a brilliant plan. And so there's all this animosity between these two peoples. And Elimelech takes his family there, not to be a witness to who God is, but he takes his family there in order to mix it with that culture and become part of that culture. His sons marry Moabite women, and after 10 years, he dies. He goes to this place not to die, and he and his sons die there. So you have Naomi, his widow. She now has two daughters she can't take care of, and so she tells them to go back to their family and their gods. Orpah is a godless woman who claims to know God. She goes, fine, okay, see ya, I'm out. Ruth, on the other hand, says, I'm not going to leave you. 
I'm going to love you, and I'm going to serve you. And she commits her life to Israel's God as the true God, and she comes home with Naomi to Bethlehem, her hometown, back to Israel, her home country. And as they pull into town, Naomi looks like she has just been beaten up because life has beaten her up. And they say, oh, is that Naomi? Look at Naomi. Oh, hey, Naomi. She says, don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant or sweet. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me the bitter, angry old woman that's going to yell at you when you drive by my house, because I don't want anybody around me, because God has dealt so severely with me. Now, Star Wars crossfade. Meanwhile, chapter two, okay? (laughs) Chapter two comes along. It's just moving right along. Chapter 2 comes along. Ruth is out in this field working hard to take care of her mother-in-law that's very bitter, Naomi. She ends up working in the field of a guy named Boaz, very godly man. Uh, Boaz works hard, has good business practices. He takes care of his employees. He looks out for the welfare of the downtrodden. Uh, he loves God, like God called him to love him, which means he will in turn love others around him, even in the midst of the time of the judge's madness. And that's the juxtaposition where you see Boaz, how he was living compared to those in the book of Judges. And he sees Ruth. And without any expectation of return, he goes out of his way to provide abundantly for her, more than she could ever get on her own. Boaz is impressed with Ruth's work, ethic, and commitment to doing what's right in the eyes of God by taking care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And chapter 2 is really Ruth working hard and Boaz noticing her character and how Boaz goes And he treats people in Ruth, noticing his character. And it's this little burgeoning affection that starts between the eligible bachelor of Boaz and the the hot young Moabite Ruth. That's kind of chapter two. Then chapter three starts, and you fast forward two to three to four months. It's now at the end of the harvest season. And there's this big, huge party, and everybody's going to be going who's worked in the harvest. And Naomi looks at Ruth, and she says, you need to clean up and do your nails and do your hair and put on makeup and get some perfume and shave your legs and your pits so you don't look like a yeti and you're going to go to the party and you're going to let Boaz see you as a woman because he's never seen you. He's only seen you out in the field covered in dirt and sweat and smelling horrible. So you're going to clean up and you're going to go and he's going to see you as a woman and it's going to be great. So she does this. She cleans up and she goes to the party and she laughs and she has a really good time at the party and she starts to watch Boaz. And when Boaz is married from food and wine, not that he's like an inebriated and can't stand up, he goes down to lay down by one of the heaps of grain and they would do this so no one came by at night and stole their hard-earned work. And so Ruth walks over and lays by his feet. And you have to be careful here because there are some Bible commentators who completely misunderstand what's taking place in chapter 3. They are so fixated on the time of the judges that they assume Boaz is like everyone else. And the point of Ruth is telling you that Boaz is not like everyone else. Boaz is loving like God loves. He's serving like God serves. He's giving like God gives. And the text of Ruth wants you to see clearly that Boaz is different in a good way because he loves God. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And some of these commentators like to say the word feet is a euphemism for something else, if you know what I mean. Okay, maybe not. Uh, And so when they say Ruth lay there next to his feet. But that totally would destroy the narrative of the text. Because again, the text is about how Boaz is going to come in and redeem Ruth and Naomi. How he is going to love them and bring them back in and do things the right way that he will be this redeemer. And I'm not saying there isn't any attraction because there was between Ruth and Boaz at this point. 
But the whole point is how Boaz is going to be this redeemer. Chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth says to Boaz at this moment, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. These are the words that Boaz previously prayed over Ruth in chapter 2 when they met that God would spread his wings over her. And so what she says is, I want you to be the one that God sends to spread his wings over me. So she's not asking Boaz to marry her. She's asking Boaz to ask her to marry him. So that works. Just like that. So Boaz is, is blown away here. And last week, one of our elders, Mike, he said, you should have talked about our standard of beauty at that point. And I'm like, oh, because sometimes I talk about this, about how when you marry somebody, they become your standard of beauty, whatever that is. And, and the older they get, that becomes your standard of beauty. Like when my wife and I got married, I, I, had, I, I just cut off my mullet, but that was her standard of beauty, a dude with a mullet. And I cut it off, and that's no longer standard of beauty. Now it's the skinny guy who lifts weights and still looks like a junior high girl. That, that's her standard of beauty. Right? When we are 80 years old, my standard of beauty will be this blue-haired old lady, that, if she even has hair at all, and, and she'll get it, and we go, that's my standard of beauty, and I'll be this old man with a cane and a pot belly who yells at people at Lowe's, and, <laughs> and that will be her standard of beauty. Wherever you, whoever you are married to, whatever that is your standard of beauty. And if we would keep that in mind, I think it would cause a lot of guys to stop stepping off in ways that they shouldn't, because this is our standard of beauty, and they become that for one another. Boaz is blown away, because she, in his mind, Ruth could have had anybody, because she's hot, and she's, and she's young, and she's a Moabite, and she's got a reputation as, as a Moabite, so she could have anybody she wanted, but yet she chooses him. And I think Ruth is blown away that Boaz would want her, because she's a Moabite, and why would anybody want me? And yet Boaz chooses her. They become for each other their standard of beauty. And this is what is awesome about the text is that they understand this. And Boaz looks at Ruth and he says, I'll do it. I'm going to go and I'm going to redeem you. But there's an obstacle. As in like any good love story, there's always an obstacle somewhere in the way. Uh, sometimes in relationships today, the obstacle is you and your laziness, and you need to get a job so you can learn how to take care of somebody else around you. Uh, we need to learn how to overcome, like Jesus overcame for us. For Boaz, uh, he's got a bitter old mother-in-law he's got to overcome, uh, and, he's, and he's got someone who else is ahead in line of him to be the Redeemer. So essentially, Boaz says, I'm going to take this other dude out and get him out of the way so I can marry you. So biblically, guys, sometimes you've got to take another dude out. It's in the Bible. And you might be confused about what this means. So, uh, a redeemer in this culture was somebody who was an extended family member. Here it's through Naomi's uh, deceased husband, Elimelech, that would come in and buy somebody back from a place of destitute poverty. In Leviticus 25, a redeemer has two functions. Number one, to redeem people, to buy them back who had gotten themselves into untenable or unsustainable situations. And second thing is to redeem property. With families, land is what people would work on and live on and stay there. And sometimes that was taken from them due to debt. This is an agrarian society. Multiple generations would live on a piece of land. You're born on it. You're raised on it. And so if you got into debt, you couldn't do bankruptcy. They didn't have that. You couldn't get a payday loan. You couldn't rack up your credit cards or anything like that. You'd have to sell yourself for a period of years for free 
to pay off whatever debt you had, or you would have to sell your land, your legacy, that all the rest of your family was on to pay off that debt. Both of these things would devastate your family because they could die of starvation, or they could be sold themselves because of some knucklehead's mistake. It's a disgraceful thing to lose your land because it was given to you by your parents and was then supposed to be given to your children. And so the Redeemer was the one who would step in and pay off the debt to get someone out of slavery or pay off the debt to get the land back and bring it back to the family. The Redeemer was the fixer. The Redeemer was the one who was blessed by God in order to bless other people. In Levitical law, this is actually part of the law, taking care of others. Leviticus 25.25 says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest Redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold relatives were meant to be these redeemers that stepped in for one another. Again, those who would buy back under payoff a debt you couldn't pay. This is why two things happen when we understand the idea of salvation and God redeeming us, is that number one, we are brought into God's family. We are adopted in. We become his. And secondly, Jesus pays for our sin. It is a debt we can never, ever pay, and Jesus pays for it. So the story is showing you what God does for his people. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. I know, long wind-up to get to the book. I know, Ruth chapter 4. So Boaz is a redeemer, but he knows there is someone in closer relationship with Naomi than he has. So Boaz is an honorable man, and he's going to go and do it just as God said to do it. He's going to honor God and honor others. A redeemer would be obligated to look after widows and orphans if a man died that he was related to. He's to come in and care for them. But this, again, was biological, biological. And Ruth is not one of these. She's actually a foreign and a Moabite, and so technically, nobody really had to take care of her. They had to look after Naomi, but Naomi sees her as a daughter, and she sees Naomi as a mother, and Naomi expects Ruth to be redeemed. This is a beautiful thing about how families come together. It, It really is. And so Boaz wants to marry Ruth, and he doesn't say, let's talk about it for seven years. He goes, I'm going to figure this out tomorrow, and that's what he goes to do. So this is what happens, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. He sent Ruth home with some extra food for Naomi, her mother-in-law, and then he's going to go to where he knows the obstacle is to marrying Ruth. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And in Hebrew, this is a a joking wordplay, like how earlier uh, Ruth just happened to end up in the field of Boaz. No, this is providence. God moving things to his purposes. And here again, Boaz knows where this guy is going to be. It's providence, God working things out to how it's supposed to be. And in the text, this guy, this other redeemer, he never even gets a name. In Hebrew, this would kind of be like uh, Mr. So-and-so or the dude. Or like when we say the word they, they say nine out of ten people like chocolate. It's they. We don't know who they are. It's miscellaneous and we don't really care. We just use it for whatever it is. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, the dude, Mr. So-and-so, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. They're probably related in some way. Boaz is very respected. We know that because verse three, or verse two, and he took the ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat. So that's somebody with some pull, right? Hold on, I'm going to get the elders of the city. Hey guys, come out here, sit down. Right? Why? Because Boaz, Boaz's a dude, man. He's a dude with some pull. You see that there. It's kind of, they're going to conduct business. Verse 3. Then he said to the redeemer, the dude, so-and-so, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. 
So Naomi has no income. She's becoming destitute. And this is her only way of survival. It's like a succession plan. It's like if the president dies, the vice president goes in. And if he dies, then it's the Speaker of the House. And after that, it's the Speaker pro, pro tem of the Senate, and then Secretary of State. I wrote this down. Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Defense, Attorney General, Secretary of the Interior, Secretary of Agriculture. Really? On and on and on. You probably get the guy that holds the remote in the White House, and boom, you're the designated survivor. You get to be president. Anybody seen the show? No? Okay. So this guy, Mr. So-and-so, what's-his-face, is first in line to buy the field. Boaz knows this. He's not doing an end run around him. He's not trying to be like, oh, shh, I'll just buy it on the side. He does what is right, so he lays it out. But Boaz is also smart, and he's crafty in business, so he's got a plan. So Boaz says this, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And that is a very polite way of saying, I want to buy it. I want to redeem it. He's saying it in a really nice way. You know, all that you can, you can, you can, but I would really like to. I'd really like to. The guy probably thinks, well, if Boaz wants to buy it, it's probably a good deal. So he says, I will redeem it. It's like, oh no, it's like a hiccup in the plan. The other guy's going to buy it. The other guy's going to redeem it. What's going to happen to Boaz and Ruth and Naomi? Oh no. I know, I know, you guys have already know the end of the story. But if you didn't, you'd be like, ah! right? <laughs> It's not a hiccup in the plan. Knows what he's doing. Okay, uh, so, verse 5. Then Boaz said, and he's brilliant because you know he's good in the business. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And here he pulls out her ethnicity. And this has come about in the book multiple times, her ethnicity, Ruth the Moabite. So it probably means this guy doesn't live in the town, doesn't know who Ruth actually is, hasn't seen her character in anything. And so he pulls this out and says, oh, you also get Ruth the Moabite. So in this guy's mind, what he hears is you also get the evil, seductress, pagan, devil worshiper in your house. That's what he hears. And he's like, oh my goodness. Like imagine if somebody offers to sell you a classic car, like cheap, like 65 Mustang or a 68 Camaro or, you know, something like, what's in that so, so, uh, supernatural? Uh, Chevelle, you know? You're like, oh yeah, nice and cheap. Oh, I'll buy it. And then they go, yeah, but uh, before you give me money, they used to sacrifice babies to Satan in the backseat. You'd be like, maybe I'll just pass. Maybe that's why it's a good deal. I, I, I don't know. Is that ever going to come out of the upholstery? I, I don't know. So you probably think twice a little bit. So he says, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the wood of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, this can be taken different ways, but what he really kind of says is, you need to make a baby with a devil worshiper. That's what he says to him. Now, technically, that's not really true because she's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. So there's all these things that kind of go along with that. But I think Boaz is just pushing because he knows what he wants. He knows what he wants. Verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. It's like, no kidding, no kidding. Lest I impair my own inheritance, he's like, uh, well, uh, not that I don't want to, but, uh, you know, I'm just thinking that I have other things on my plate right now. So he's probably married. He probably has, you know, has other kids. And if he, and if he takes Ruth and he's got to make a baby with Ruth, then all of a sudden her kids are going to take inheritance away from his kids. So there's this whole issue that goes with it. And I got to tell you, a Moabite wife is not something your current wife is going to be happy if you came home with. I was just going into town, and Boaz stopped me on the way into town for some milk, and he said, and he forced me to take home this young, hot Moabite as my wife, honey. I couldn't help it. There will be some very cold nights in that house, okay? He says, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And just like that, Boaz gets himself a Ruth. 
It's awesome. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. Now, let me explain what this is like. This custom is traced to a time when you purchased a piece of land. They didn't have pieces of paper like title and stuff. So what the seller would do is he would walk it in his sandals, and then he would attest, I have walked this piece of land. And he would take off the sandal, and he would give it to you as kind of the deed to the property. I I know it's weird, like for your house and for your car, you have pieces of paper now, but can you imagine this? I mean, if you're prosperous, you probably got a closet full of like single sandals. (laughs) Imagine imagine if you want to go sell a piece of property. Oh, no, no, hold on, hold on. It's the pink one with the blue ribbon. I got to find it. I know it's in here somewhere, right? And you, here, it's like, I don't know. I mean, this guy that's that's supposed to be the first line redeemer, didn't see this coming, walks home with one sandal. Nice, way to go. Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders of, and all the people, so it starts and ends like this, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Lemelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, uh, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. And that's where people have a problem. Oh, you bought, it's like property. But you know from reading the story, that's not how they see one another. What happens here is Boaz is trying to do everything according to the law so everything is done correctly. He says, To perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. And he ends, You are witnesses this day. And so what a lot of commentators think that what's trying to be said in the text here is that this is what God does for us. God purchases us. We are called slaves to sin, and God purchases us out of sin and brings us back to himself. This is what he does. And the text is suggesting that if a mere human could love an outcast and redeem her and bring her into fellowship with himself, then God could love all the outcasts of the world. And God could redeem them and bring them into fellowship with himself. Because in the end, this is what Jesus, our Redeemer, does. Now, the people seem to get it, because in verse 11, it says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. They repeat his words, and then they say this, May the Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. They say, May she be like the matriarchs from which we actually come today. That's a huge statement. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, another person who was brought in because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And there's a lot here. We're going to kind of sort through that in, in about two weeks to go this deeper understanding of redemption. But I want you to understand today is it's kind of backwards from what I normally do. I normally point out how much God has loved and redeemed us and how we're supposed to live that out. But what the text is trying to show us is we are meant to live lives that are centered in the gospel so we become redeemers in each other's lives as well. We're not the big R Jesus. We're the little R redeemer. And following where we started, uh, for men, you guys in this room, I think this is especially true for you. I really do. I think some of you in the end will marry or did marry a single mom or a divorced woman or a widow or maybe someone who never grew up knowing Jesus like Ruth. Maybe you married somebody just like that. You know, maybe uh, you married a Ruth who had a really hard life and went through a whole bunch of things. But being open to being a redeemer means you don't have a list for what your potential spouse is supposed to be. You know, it's, it's not all easy just thinking what you want because honestly, we have no idea what we need. God knows what we need. And God leads us into situations where we are supposed to be. Ruth is a woman who lived through the death of her husband. She was married 10 years, and she was childless. She's got a bitter mother-in-law, as I said a couple weeks ago, as a bonus prize. She lives in a new town. 
And yet her character becomes developed because of it. She was noble. She has a deep appreciation for what Boaz did for her of his kindness and his blessing and his grace. And if we, in relationships and friendships, only look for people around us who never had any hardships, never went through any difficulty, who hasn't endured any loss, we would never end up with either a spouse or a friend like Ruth. I think too often today, a lot of parents for their kids, they try and do everything they can to keep their kids safe. It's like, uh, I call it knee pads and helmets and everything that kids do today. Sometimes kids need to actually get hurt. Sometimes you've you got to allow them to go through some hard stuff in their lives. When I was a kid, we had no knee pads and helmets, and we had bikes that were rusted out, and we would make our own jumps, and we'd come home, ah! and mom be like, are you dead? Nope, then you're okay. You know, it's, I think we should have more compassion than that today. <laughs> but we have this thing where we don't want anybody to experience anything that's painful. And yet the truth is most people grow through painful times. I, I look back at the good times in my life, and I am so thankful for them, but I look back at the hard times, and those are the times that I grow. Ruth is somebody who grew through the tough and the hard times. She is someone who allowed all the hardship to push her into the hands of God. She is someone who allowed Jesus to come and rescue her where she was. And so I, what I am saying is in our lives, we've got to look past necessarily where people are at those moments. Because think of Naomi. You'll see by the end of the book, Naomi is someone whose life totally turns around. Where she starts off all bitter and angry, she then takes her real name back upon herself again at the end. She becomes pleasant and sweet because of what God has done. And too often, we run into Naomi's and tough spots in their lives. We're like, I can't deal with you anymore. I'm just done. I'm not walking with you through this because I need my life to be easier than you. And we walk away and we cease to be those redeemers. And I'm not saying that you're supposed to do it all by yourself. I'm saying that we as redeemers come together around somebody. This is why Element says a lot about gospel communities. Is we believe that God calls us into one another's lives to be redeemers. And so something the first redeemer in line to Ruth actually says to Boaz is he says, she's not worth it. He looks at Ruth when he's like, oh, I'll buy the property, it'll be great. But then he realizes that Ruth comes with it. He essentially says, she's not a good bet. I'm not going to do that. And this happens to us all the time because today we live in a world dominated by economics. And we look around at any relationship and we think, what can I get out of that? How much is that going to take from me? That's how we think about relationships. You hear a lot about networking today. All it is is a fancy word for maximizing relationships for profit. One economist said that you should always hold the door for the person behind you because you never know when you will see them again and they can repay you. And so one person said about that, I don't know who said it, but I wrote down the quote because it was good, and they said, if that's the case, then chivalry is dead and networking is the spear that is wobbling in its bleeding heart. Because we don't just help people for what they can give to us. We help and we give because our God is first given to us. Being redeemers means we stop asking for what we can get out of it. What people can give back to us. We stop asking those questions. It means we start to learn to live to give as our great God has given to us. I mean, what if we stop looking as people at people as just investments? What if we actually saw our interactions with neighbors and family and friends as God calls us to actually see them? And you've got to really think, how is our view of the world and how it works twisted who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live and what we are meant to be? When we look at the scriptures and understand we've been given the gift of relationships because God intends for us to live out our lives together in community with one another. 
I think there's a lot of people today who are afraid to even try new friendships or new relationships because of shame. And when I say that, I mean we have the shame and the fear that we won't be accepted or we won't belong, that we're not good enough. We won't be a good investment. Like Ruth probably wasn't seen as a good investment for this guy. As I said at the beginning, men and women must hold each other to more value in each other's eyes because we are made in the image of God. I think deep inside, we all kind of ask this question, are we a good investment? Maybe not in those words, okay? We may not use those words. But most of us think, no, I'm not. And that's why we all try to hide who we really are. When we start getting around friends, we start acting more like them than to who God calls us to be. We start becoming more like this thing we want to be rather than what God calls us to be. We start to change who we are because we have shame in ourselves. But this is where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, comes in. Because the God of the universe has not only deemed us worthy, he has made us worthy. He adopts us in. He calls us his children because he loves us. He places value in us to redeem and save us. We are a people who are like Ruth. We're lost, not knowing if we're loved, and Jesus comes, like Boaz comes to Ruth and says, I want to redeem you. We are worthy, not because we are so good, but because God says we are. And this is why we must focus on the goodness of who God is. We must understand God's redemption of us. Because then we will become redeemers in each other's lives. And that's the only way it's going to happen. If we don't see and understand what God has first done for us, we will begin to burn out. We'll feel like we're giving all the time and someone's just always sucking the life out of us because we see it in terms of economics and what I'm giving and what I'm getting and I'm not getting enough and they're taking too much. So therefore, the cash register is closed. We're done. But when we understand that it is God who redeems us and God who saves us and God sees value in that other person, then we can come in and start loving them as God calls us to. And that also means if you are someone who's going through a lot of stuff in your life, your, your job isn't only just to take and take and take and take. Your job is to look for places where you can also give yourself away like God has first given to you. We are, we are meant to do this not just as individuals but as a community together. A community together. If you've ever said, well, I can understand why nobody ever talks to me. Well, that is probably something in your mind where you're expecting people to give and give and give to you. And people should. But where are you giving away to others? Where are you going out of your way to love others around you like God has first loved you? See, a matter of fact, right? God is calling us to be a people who live out the gospel a people who learn how to give as God gave to us and love as God first loved us. And this is what you see all through the story of Boaz and Ruth. It's a giving and a giving and a giving and a giving. And eventually what you will see in the end is that Naomi does, act in the midst of her bitterness, she gives to Ruth. She expects Ruth to be redeemed. And she will now spend the rest of her life caring for Ruth and Boaz and the baby that comes along. You will see some beautiful things that comes about in her lives because of what the grace of the gospel had done. This is why we talk about communion every week as a church, because communion is a place to remember what our God did. That's why you break the cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it into the wine or the grape juice, or reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me as a people. So we understand that what all that God did to rescue us and adopt us and bring us back in again, because when God brings us back in, he then sends us back out. As I always say, God saves us individually. He does. But then he places us into community, into this thing called the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, we live out what God calls us to as a community together. The band's going to come up. As he do, I'm going to invite you to communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, 
I mean, maybe you're in a place today where uh, you're in a relationship and, and you feel like you just give all the time and the person always takes and you want somebody to pray about that with you. They'd love to. Maybe you're somebody who just always takes and takes and takes and never thinks anybody has given enough to you. Well, they'd love to pray with you. Maybe they wouldn't love to pray with you about that, but they will pray with you about that. <laughs> maybe a way that you can actually start giving of yourself to others as well. Uh, maybe you're in a relationship today where you want to learn how to live as, as Boaz and Ruth began to live, and you'd like somebody to pray for you about that. They would love to pray with you about that. And so what we need to understand is that our God calls us to something that we can never do in our own effort. We can never do it. And this is why he gives us a strength and he gives us a spirit to be able to live out the things that he calls in us, that we would understand his great redemption of us, the adoption that he has called us in and paid for our debt and then sends us back out as his witnesses into the world as a people together. Because our God is good. There's offering boxes on the side on the back and we give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. Uh, we do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done so you actually have to get up and do that. Uh, there's food in the back. Grab something to eat. Meet some other people. Uh, maybe have a conversation this week uh, with some people about some of the stuff in the sermon notes. You know, where, where in your life has someone stepped in and, and redeemed you, so to speak? Where has someone bought you back, maybe out of a place of despair or misery? Uh, how are you giving and loving to those around you in a redemptive way? How are we all beginning to live and love more like Jesus to put him on display to the world around us? Because we understand what he has first done for us. And this is what it means to live as a redemptive people. Honoring him and living out the life that he calls us to live because he is simply that good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us deep in our hearts to have the conviction to understand what you have done for us. And that you would begin to revive this deep desire in us to honor you by how we love those around us. That you would take all the things in our hearts and our heads that are misguided and are bent in towards ourselves and you would have our focus be where it is meant to be. First and foremost upon you and then living out the great redemption that you have given to us and others' lives around us that we would be a people that the world could look at and say, I understand better who God is because of how those people live. And we as a people would always point back to you as the reason for the, for the way, reason we live the way that we do. Because you have rescued us first. And then you've set us into relationships with one another and sent us out. So I ask that today we would begin to live out that great calling that you have placed within our lives. That we would honor you by how we love and give and serve. And when we get to places where we feel like we're getting a little burnt out, we would take a step back and you would have us see what you have first done for us. And then we would again step out and be redeemers to those around us. Thank you for redeeming us first and loving us in such a way that it changes every bit of who we are. So teach us to live out that changed life. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.